Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Well, Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Tuesday, June 20th. Okay. It's the week of Father's Day. We had yeah. a great Father's Day, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's always uh, good to think about fathers. Look, I was watching the baseball game. The guys were talking, the Mets announcers, and they say they're sitting in front of a list that was compiled based on some poll which says that Father's Day is ranked at the 18th most important holiday in the United States. 18th, uh, number 16 being Arbor Day, number 18 being Father's Day, which was disappointing, I thought. Yeah, but it could be for a lot of different reasons. Uh, first of all, I can't be right. Uh, let me start no, with no, that. No, 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 no. Who decides what makes it important? If it's based on money, right. Not a lot of people running out to buy flowers for their Father's Day, okay? Well, no one's buying Dad's, flowers. No, 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 time out. No one's what? buying flowers for Arbor Day. So it's not based on money. It's, it's based on something else. Mother's Day. Why is Mother's Day? Arbor Day is 16. Father's Day is 18. Okay? Just, let's stick with that. Uh, so I, it's hard to understand. But, it's not based on money. It's based on something else. Anyway, it's, it's a meaningless that's poll. That's silly. Nobody's even heard of Arbor Day. I agree. It doesn't yeah, make yeah, any sense. I, I wouldn't say that. Nobody takes their tree out number one, for brunch. Number one was Christmas. Number two... Is Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a bigger deal than Father's Day. Let's just get right down to it. It's a bigger deal. That's okay with me. Doesn't bother me. Doesn't if bother Mama me. ain't happy, ain't no one happy. I guess not. Okay. But that's, I didn't realize the gap was so large. That's all. So what? No, there's there's nothing fun about Father's Day. You have to go to a baseball game or something like that, Mm-mm-mm. and you don't, you know, is better food, better, you know, you fathers don't want any presents, do they? I you know, never want any you know, gifts. It's 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 a different the image it's of father. It's harder to buy a dad a gift. So no, it's, I, I, it's, it's oh, different. I think it goes back. We're not going to spend. But time nonetheless, on this. it goes back to the traditional thought of masculinity of what we call stoic. Competence. We were reading an article about competence. Real real men don't need any goddamn cards. Right. They don't need any goddamn cards. They don't need appreciation. They don't need uh, motive support. And uh, and it's true, right? So there you go. Nonetheless, like all holidays, it makes you stop for a minute and think about something, in this case your father, and that's... uh, Well, I think about my father, that's something, but I think about him all the time, so it's it's making difference to its father. And uh, I've been thinking about my father a lot because we were uh, dealing with uh, uh, preparing a house for sale, Mm. and uh, I'm doing all these little repairs, and Mm -hmm. I'm always remembering, you know, things that my father showed me how to do, or thinking, gosh, you know, Steuben would know how to do this, you know, if only he were around, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so, well, I, there I, you have it. But let me give you another, let me tie it all together because okay. the most memorable Father's Day <laughs> to me was in 1964. And I, I'm not really good with specific year dates for events, but I am, I know this one. You were and 10 years old. I was 10 years old. We were out there on Long Island. My grandfather was out there uh, because, you know, it was Father's Day. And uh, the Mets were playing on the black and white TV set. And Jim Bunning of the Phillies pitched the perfect game against the Mets. It was a, the first perfect game in 50 years or something like that. And uh, it was a huge event. I remember it well. My father and I watched it together. We were riveted. My grandfather couldn't have been less interested. Right. Uh, but uh, it was such a, an iconic baseball moment. It wrapped up in Father's Day. It's kind of hard to resist. And once in a while, you hear people refer to that. They remember that happened on Father's Day. 
in June 1964. Uh, and Jim Budding, of course, you... later becoming a congressman, as we all know. So oh, there you okay, go. as yeah. we all know. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that, I mean, that's interesting. It just shows you the gulf between... Generations? Generations. And, you know, your immigrant grandfather, yeah. who made so many things possible right. by being here... And coming to the U.S., right. living in the Bronx. And he wasn't going to uh, bridge uh, but, that. And yet, this was not, in many ways, not not his country. Right. And this takes us to the play we saw, right? <clears throat> Which takes us exactly to the play we saw. On, uh, well, I don't know what day we saw it. But Thursday. Just we saw it on Thursday. Yes. And we saw Leopoldstadt. Now, by Leop- Tom Stoppard. Yes, Tom Stoppard, of course. Uh, which, uh, as it happens, just a few days before we saw it, won the Tony Award for Best Play. And um, Tom Stoppard. A few days after we saw. Uh, no. We saw it after it won, it won the Tony Award. Yes. Yes. Was what I said. But in any event, um, Tom Stoppard, the great playwright, and this is I don't know how many plays he's written, and we've enjoyed a lot of his plays. Uh, and this has been sort of well received. Um, and it's a story about a family in uh, Vienna. Um, for the period from uh, the end of the 19th century through 1950-something, different scenes. Um, And of course, uh, since they're in Vienna, since they're in Austria, uh, they're experiencing, uh, you know, the um, rise of the Nazis and how that rocked Austria, and in particular Austrian Jews. So uh, it's kind of a sad affair. Um, So what do you think? I thought it was good. I thought it was it, it was interesting. It's all part of this looking back, finding one's history. It's uh, semi-autobiographical for um, Tom Stoppard, mm-hmm. who did not, who I guess knew he was Jewish, but didn't no, really, he no, didn't even know he was no. Jewish. Didn't know he was Jewish until he was in his fifties. Okay, so he because his he, mother had married uh, an English uh, uh, whatever, uh, but it, it, he had a very English upbringing based right. on his stepfather. And his stepfather was anti-Semitic, or at least... Yes, he was supposedly anti-Semitic, but to some degree. But I I don't think that's the headline. The real deal is... to get through her life, she kind of let go of her Jewish background and, you know, thought she was, I think, helping her son by shielding him. I don't know if she's the heroine of the story, but the real point... No, I don't know if she's not the heroine, but I'm just trying to explain... well, here's the real point that resonates with the play, as far as I'm concerned, is that he doesn't understand he's Jewish until he's quite mature. And, uh, and he doesn't even know what it is to be Jewish. Right. And, and this, is not too, <laughs> this is not too different from the me, Anne Barrest story. Yeah, let me tell you something. I just yeah. saw the play. He still doesn't know what it takes to be Jewish or what right. it is to be Jewish. Okay. Which he would be the first person to tell you. Right. Because the, the play... He would be the first person because the play opens with... The family celebrating Christmas. Christmas right. It opens with a Christmas tree. Right. And it ends yeah. with a scene in which there's a young boy who's clearly a stand-in for Tom Stoppard, who's a very English young boy who had gone to private schools in England, as Tom Stoppard did, uh, sort of being confronted in a way with his Jewish relatives from Austria who are reminding him of his past. And he doesn't really... He's, he's perfectly agreeable. He's a perfectly nice person. But he doesn't relate to it in any serious way. And he's sort of, you know, he, he's interested. But he's not I, I don't know if he. I, I don't know if he seems perfectly agreeable. Well, he's he seems like a dope. Does he? Yes. I think you're harsh. Yes. No, no. I, I, uh, I don't think I was being harsh. I think uh, it, it's, there are times when you look back and you say, boy, I was a dope 
when I was 16 years old. Well, okay. And uh, there's a little bit of that. You know, how clueless was I well, totally about significant my family totally, and about family? It's totally significant because it's Stoppard. Again, that's the stand-in for Stoppard. So Stoppard's creating that character as a stand-in for himself. But uh, so the play is these, these various scenes, which are in some cases uh, sort of... Um, foreshadowing the rise of Nazism in Austria and then the scenes that take place during the, the real rise of Nazism and then reflecting on it and the tragedies that followed. Um, and uh, they're very affecting. Yeah, the different scenes right. capture different moments in time right. with characters at different ages. Right. Sometimes the same characters, sometimes a new generation, right. et cetera. And, and, and of course, it tells the story of the family through yeah, all the, yeah it does but you see it, here's it's funny because i was i was reading uh jesse greenwell nordic uh a review of a play called the doctor which maybe we'll see but in any event it's a different play and he's commenting on it this is just a few days ago and he says this has been a season of jews blamed or blaming themselves for the emotional physical and indeed genocidal violence against them tom stoppers leopoldstadt seems to argue that the assimilated jews of Vienna should have seen the Holocaust coming and bought a ticket out. And I'm saying to myself, that's not the play. That's mm-hmm. not the play. I mean, um, first of all, yes, I think the word assimilated is something we should mention. These these Jews are totally assimilated, um, which is not to be negative. And certainly Stopper doesn't mean to be negative. It's the only thing he can write about. I mean, there's not an observant Jew in the entire play. Uh, and I, I suspect that Stopper, you know, looking for authenticity, at least trying to write from that perspective, can't really write about observant Jews, doesn't know anything about observant Jews. So you don't see any observant Jews, which is fine with me. What's interesting to me about the play in this connection, prompted by Jesse Green's comment, is the play is not about Jews. The play is about everybody else. The Jews are the victims, and they're reflecting of, of what's happening to them. And you can see what's happening to them. And there do have some discussions about their efforts at assimilation, what that's worth and what's that not. But what you come away with and what's so striking about the play is all the facts about everybody but the Jews, about the Austrians and how awful they were. Of course, you all know how, how, how awful Hitler was. But, you know, they, they, they do spend a fair bit of time emphasizing that, you know, it was, it's not just that Hitler took over and forced the Austrians to do X and Y. It's like the Austrians were, were more than happy to be enlisted in the Nazi cause and to oppress the Jews and to round them up and to take their property and so on. And so it's not a couple of political figures. It's that, a whole generation. Well, that's true. Right. Okay. That was also true of the book I read, The Postcard oh, by really? Anne Barrett. Okay. The French were more than happy. Right. Okay. So, and that's but the here's the here's yeah. the other strain right. the thing that is in both yeah. um, works, and that is in in the French book. Yeah, they're saying, you know, they're almost saying we didn't even know we were Jews. Yeah, we thought we were French. That's in this. That's in this play too. We, you know, they thought of themselves as Austrians. Right, and uh, you know, and that's. Part of the realization is of one character in particular, you know, no one's looking at him as an Austrian. They're looking at him as a Jew and they're, you know, pretending to treat him right. a little bit as a fellow countryman, right. but not really. But that's why I say the, it's the same thing. And that's why I say it's really not about being Jewish. It's about the way that others perceive these folks, no matter how Jewish they are or they're not. 
and uh, perceive and act in a way that's, that's horrible toward them. And uh, that's what you come away with in play. That's why I say it's not about Jews. It's about, you know, the, the people, the non-Jews who visit these horrible things upon this group in Austria. Uh, and frankly, in, in identifying people who they say fall short, you know, the English, the Americans uh, are covered in, in Stoppard's play as just not, uh, not being much of a help, uh, not extending themselves at all in that connection. Now, I'm not going to get into how, how much of this is true or not true, but that's the way Stoppard sees it as an outsider, honestly, writing mm-hmm. about the UK. Perhaps he's not an outsider there. That's where he is, uh, an outsider with respect to the U.S., so it's very much, uh, it's a very striking play. Yeah, and uh, one of the reviews I read of The Postcard, or an interview with the author, yeah. um, kind of saying, why, why this subject matter? And why are mm-hmm. people more and more interested in why are things being written yeah. about this? And the author basically says, because the actual witnesses are dying. Yeah. Okay. Well, Once you no longer have the actual witnesses, you lose some of the immediacy of the truth, yeah. and the truth begins to morph. Um, and so it's witnessing this. this yeah, but I mean, look, I will say the emphasis, not on Hitler, but on, on the fact that uh, all these populations, uh, which in some from some perspectives were viewed as uh, Austrians being a country that was occupied and therefore deserving of aid. And they do mention this. They come on, occupied. These folks were part of the, the movement. Who are you mm-hmm. kidding? Mm-hmm. I mean, that stuff, that stays with you. And uh, it's tough to reconcile with what but, you think. But anyway, it was, so it was a good and interesting play. Yes. And, and not, you know. And it's amazing that it aligns so much with that book you read. I mean. Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it is. It's, a, it's very interesting. And you know, European it, works written about the same time. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we had a, we did have a good night in New York, and it was it was the weather was lovely, and uh, New York seemed uh, lively. Yeah, we saw. A few. We were in the Times Square area, right. and I've said a couple times that I feel like people were kind of dressed up, having fun. Yeah. Um, it seemed, you know, my mother asked me recently, "What's New York like now? Um, is it just full of crime and uh, etc.?" There, and, there, there, uh, there are five different boroughs, you know, so. Exactly, but we had a lovely night. We had a, a um, actually a good meal at a New York restaurant. We on our I think we've mentioned before that lately when we go into plays, when we go out to eat, we're just going, we're just uh, you know popping into a little ramen joint, right, and getting a quick bite because the restaurants have gotten so expensive well, 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 also, and so disappointing. Well, also more to the point, the restaurants out here are kind of like suffering from that a well, little we, bit we too. We talked about yeah. we talked to that. But we found a nice restaurant. Yeah. But actually we went to a restaurant. Yeah. We had um in other uh, there's uh, several restaurants uh, called the Mermaid Inn or the yeah. Mermaid Inn Oyster Bar, yeah. etc. There's a couple downtown. There used to be one on the Upper West Side. Yeah. Uh, and uh we were walking through Times Square area a few weeks ago, we noticed that there's a now a Mermaid Inn Oyster Bar in the Times Square area. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we'd try it out. Mm-hmm. And it was actually quite good. Yeah, against all right? odds, it was very good. Number one, um, and number one, it's a huge restaurant. Yeah. 500 and yeah, some it's, it's not seats. an intimate, okay? fancy place. No, but, uh, no. It's nice. Um, but it was very pleasant to be in. Yeah. And I looked it up a little bit. You know, the owner 
the owners are uh, Danny Abrams and Cindy Smith. And Danny Abrams used to be part owner of the Red Cat, which right. we loved, which was right. uh, downtown. Um, and and um, he is doing a joint venture with uh, a company called A La Carte, mm-hmm. which owns a bunch of restaurants, Carmine's and Virgil's included. Mm-hmm. So those are high inventory, you know, yeah, big places. It's the ultimate high inventory. Right, place. right, right. Yeah. It really turning over lots of people, right. um, et cetera. So they're experts at that. And um, the CEO of that, Jeffrey Bank, mm-hmm. uh, is actually the one who came up with the idea with his daughter of, uh, you know, you know what Times Square needs? A restaurant that will have actual New Yorkers in it, mm-hmm. which is the feeling you got when you were there. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, a restaurant worth going to. And it, you know, uh, didn't seem uh, overly touristic. But one of the things that's interesting about it, and try to stay with me here, Dan, yeah, is right. that it is part $3 million of the money to fund this restaurant. And it's okay. in the, it's in a location that used to be a Heartland Brewery. Right. You know, um, you know, couldn't be less interesting kind of restaurant, right? Um, comes from uh, something called the EB five program it's a federal program that grants no that grants foreign investors green cards okay Mm -hmm. if they um have at least a five hundred thousand dollars stake in a a business Mm -hmm. like these restaurants so so they have a bunch of uh it's a passive role they don't have any votes they don't have any control. So it's a, it's a way okay. to get people to invest in New York City. So they found, you yeah. know, so they have, so supposedly they have about $300 million yeah. in this well, kind funny. of investment. That's funny. Uh, and uh, they said something about it might be, the article I read said it might be one of the um, first restaurants that's utilizing this EB-5 well, program. We'll see. I mean, it, it, um, But maybe, anyway, maybe it, it was last. attractive. Yeah. The service was impeccable. Yeah. They got us in and out of there. The food was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had oysters and fish right. and the, the things right. that we love. Um, and uh, it really, uh, um, you know, could be a keeper yeah. on our on our restaurant list. Sure. I just hope it stays in business. But but, it, but that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Finding new ways to uh, put things together. Um, this is an entirely... Danny Abrams' other restaurants are much, much smaller. Yeah. So to some extent, they're uh, depending on... The knowledge and expertise. Well, of you know, it was the funniest Jeffrey moment Bank. to me, and then we'll go on to the next restaurant. But uh, when we said to the waitress, we said, "Oh, you know, we're having this is very nice." You know, we used to go uh, to the Red Cat and whatever, and she said, "Oh, yeah, this." You know, they closed that, and she knew the whole story. And yeah. at one point, she says, "Well, you know, what Danny's trying to do is this, this, and Danny. Danny's the owner of the place. I mean, this is just our our waiter, our waitress. Yeah, it, it, they're totally attuned, you know, to what's going on. It's just going well." Yeah, not, but, not but, the normal experience. It was good. Yeah. All right. So, so we go off to a place here. It's a simple sushi place called the Bamboo House. When we're, we're looking for something, it's not it a, a simple sushi place. It's, it's a simple sushi place in uh, Frenchtown, which is you know the fifteen twenty minute drive from us. We go every week. It's a neighborhood place, and we show up there this weekend. And there's all these fire trucks and related type vehicles parked in front and uh, people scurrying around. And we're going, oh, my God, what happened? They must have had a fire. 
or we're going to have to get out of here. Uh, but not the case. Not really. The no, case. we actually, we even though there's all this hubbub, yeah. people seem to be walking in and out the door right. you know, with bags of takeout, mm-hmm. etc. And so we say, okay, we'll park and we'll go in and see, see what's going on. We go in. It's business as usual. Right. And the owner is there, Carolyn. She goes, hello. Yeah. <laughs> and you know we get waved towards the table, and uh, you know, and uh, you can see that. So it, a pickup truck has run into the addition. The door to the addition is closed. You can look through the door; it's fairly cleaned up. Right. Um, and yet, uh, but there's, there's a, the usual. But there's a car you know, in the middle of it. Yeah. So and yet they just um, no. Know, there was no longer a car. In well, the they were cleaning it up, but it was it was they motored on. But it just should yeah. It just should you have you know. They first of all, I think I can't. I think Carolyn. Carolyn is another great restaurateur. Um, well, we'll and, see. She's uh, got another one open. And up. she, you know, keeps things rolling. You know, yeah. nothing's going to stop her, even a truck I remember, going in the front door. Yeah, I remember saying to you, I hope they have business interruption insurance. But when you think about it, they didn't really interrupt their business too much. You know, car drove in the middle of the restaurant. That's okay. Well, this, the uh, outdoor seating was full. The indoor seating yeah. was full. Uh, takeout seemed Life to be... Life goes on. Yeah. Uh, going like crazy. Yeah, uh, hats off to uh, incredibly... Industrious group at Bamboo House. Yeah, they were uh, unperturbed. All right, so uh, boy, we've talked a lot about the city and restaurants and stuff. I know you had something completely different about desert kites. I didn't know what a desert kite was. Well, I didn't know what a desert kite is either. But it turns out a desert kite yeah. is a kind of it's a um, massive prehistoric uh, stone structure yeah. in the desert. Okay, Mm -hmm. and what was kind of a funnel trap, and they could be miles long, and they look like a kite. At one end, there's a big sort of head, Mm -hmm. you know, like the kite, and there are generally these tails, like two tails that come out. And what those are are meter-high walls Mm -hmm. um, that supposedly were used to trap animals. You could herd gazelles into this corridor Mm -hmm. and then into these different, uh, the kites have, uh, you know, different, I don't know, uh, bins or something or drops in them. And then, you know, herd the gazelles, Mm -hmm. uh, the different herds into the traps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you have your uh, food supply. Yeah, right. Okay. So these date like thousands, like, Anywhere up to like 11,000 years Mm -hmm. old. So they've known about those. They're about, if you can believe it, and they're in the desert area. They're mostly in, uh, you know, Jordan, Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Okay. They know of about 6,000 of them. Okay. And they're really only visible from like the sky. Fully visible. You can, if you were looking down from an airplane, you could see Mm -hmm. the design of these structures, mm-hmm. right? But what's interestingly interesting is they recently found two big stone monoliths, you know, like a stele, um, that have engravings on them that they can specifically relate to a particular desert kite, as if it is either a diagram. For the construction of this kite, mm-hmm. or you know, just a commemoration of it, or a depiction of it, no idea mm-hmm. 
what it was for or how it was used. The question is, how does somebody standing on the ground in front of, you know, a stone with a chisel and a hammer, how can they visualize this thing that you really can only visualize from the sky? Yeah. Well, that's the question. Unless, as you say, it was a diagram for the construction of the desert kite. Right. It's still hard to visualize. But right. But it's this, yeah. Um, but maybe it's commemorative. We don't know yeah. what it was for. So that's really interesting. And I think, um, you know, it, it just, again, you know, I have this kind of theme that uh, archaeology, et cetera, gets more and more interesting every minute. We're finding out more things, including this, dinosaurs in Australia. Yes. Now, I'm not such a dinosaur nut. Or an Australian nut. Okay. Yeah. I'm finding out more about Australia every day. We have new... Uh, neighbors from Australia, etc. And you have a grandson. And you have friends you have who a turn grandson in. who's a dinosaur nut. Mr. I have a dinosaur. I'm related to people who are interested in dinosaurs <laughs> right. in Australia. Yeah. Okay. So um, anyway, um, apparently there weren't dino. Apparently the general thinking was there weren't many dinosaurs in Australia. Right. But now, in uh, Central West Queensland, mm-hmm. they are finding lots of dinosaurs. Okay, they are digging up, and mostly the farmers are coming across them. For a long time, they weren't really telling anybody because they didn't want some crazy dinosaur frenzy to start happening. But now the paleontologists are really getting into this, and uh, I think we're going to have a whole different picture of what the dinosaur story was in Australia. In fact, one of the um, dinosaur skeletons they found is telling them about a dinosaur that, you know, I think is the biggest one uh, found anywhere so far kind of thing. Really? Yeah. So this is very exciting. Dinosaurs in Australia, West Queensland. Well, what was interesting to me was that this guy said he lived there for a long time. And he always, they would always find little bones or something. And he had it in his head that if they dug a little deeper, uh, maybe they'll find something more. And I don't know what got him going, but one day he dug a little deeper and boom. They said, yeah. They did find bigger pieces. Yeah, that's where they all are. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So now, and they were also worried about the fact that if they uh, made it clear to scientists that there were all these dinosaurs that there were all these folks would come and everything would be taken away. You know, there would be red tape. People wouldn't be able to farm their land. The economy would be disturbed. But it turns out, not a problem, that connection. If anything has brought tourists down there, it's all positive. Well, they've needed the um, increased attention, actually. So there, um, people are paying like $2,500 to go for a dinosaur dig for a week, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And so, and uh, consequently, they're needing a few more hotel rooms, etc. Yeah. So, dinosaurs in Australia. Who knew? Apparently, the farmers. The farmers, yes. Uh, All right, just quickly, just, you know, an odd thing. Uh, There's an article about an apartment that comes to rent in New York City, in Brooklyn in particular, for close to $6,000 a month. And... No, no, no. Somebody has a townhouse. Oh, okay. It's a townhouse. Okay? Yeah. A townhouse in Fort Greene, That's Brooklyn. Brooklyn. That's okay? Brooklyn, yeah. And they want to rent out two apartments. Okay. Both, you know, around between uh, five and $6,000. Yeah. Okay. And uh, they sound beguiling, spacious, sun-drenched, 
full floor. You're really selling this. You know? yeah. And uh, apparently included in the ad was the phrase, wonderful vegan landlord. Yeah. And the only stipulation was no meat slash fish in the building. That's right. So if you rent the place and you're living there, you can't have meat or fish. Right. Well, well, here's the thing. Yes. It's not that he's anti-carnivore, yeah. although maybe he or she is. I, mean, I think it's actually she. Um, uh, they, it's not that they're refusing that you have to be a vegetarian to live there. Right. But they don't want the smells of cooking meat wafting up to yeah, their I mean, apartment. that's not so crazy. I don't think that's crazy, do you? Well, whether no. it's crazy or not, no, it's a funny thing to run into if you're trying to rent an apartment. So well, because uh, there are a lot of things you can't really um, refuse to rent to somebody because of their age or their race or their religion. Well, of or course, stuff the, like the that. Times is on it saying is that illegal? It's like that's the first thought that comes to mind. Why it is that? I don't know. Anyway, they, they can't seem to come up with a law that forbids that. Uh, and why would you have a law that forbids that? So it's not illegal. Um, and uh, it's but it's just, just kind of funny. It's, it's just quirky. kind of weird. Well, the, they ask one couple about it. They say, "Well, we get mostly takeout." And I'm saying to myself, "How does that cut? Are you allowed to bring takeout in there?" Or... Well, they sort of in the article they sort of imply so sushi, steak, tartare, etc. would be fine. Yeah. Roasting a chicken, not right. It's really about but take the smell. Can you do? Yeah, but takeout would have a smell. It so wouldn't be any cooking smells. Yeah, but you would have well, a food yeah, smell. Takeout, you know. All right. What somebody is getting out of a bag to eat? Not my problem. Does, uh, it, does that waft up to the next floor? It's tough to get an apartment. All right. So you were some... God, you better you, explain you, this. You're working me like a dog here. Yeah. <laughs> article after article after yes, article. Yeah. All right. So this is kind of an odd story. This is a... I don't know if it's sad or if it's good or what. Cleaning a relative's apartment near LA. Yeah. In LA. Whatever. Some people find... An incredible stash of uh, pennies, mm-hmm. maybe $10,000 or so. Yeah. I mean, that's not nothing. I mean, that's a good reward for cleaning out somebody's uh, You know how many pennies $10,000 It's like a million pennies. Yeah. Okay. So what do you do with that many pennies? And and they they sort of knew about the, uh, the this is somebody's father-in-law, yeah. right? Father-in-law um, was described as a wartime baby. And a big believer in the value of metals. Mm. So at a certain point, he was buying pennies. Did he thought the metal would be worth something? Because he thought the copper would be Maybe it worth is. something. Well, copper's worth a lot. You know, people steal gutters. Right, right, people right. steal copper, copper gutters. So, is it, yeah. um, so anyway, so they clean out this place. They find all these pennies. And they're going to head to Car, Car Star, Coinstar. Mm. Not Car Star, Coinstar. Oh, Car course. Star after Coinstar. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, and uh, here's the problem with that, though. Right. Coinstar takes a percentage. Oh, really? I don't know. You know, when you put your coins in. So if you're that. just doing, you know, your random pocket change or right. whatever, it, it's not a huge amount, but, uh, you know, it can add up, I guess, if you're doing $10,000. Yeah, okay. They take $500 um, or something. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so then they go to the bank, yeah. you know, and the the one bank they go to, they say, you know, we don't have, we don't have room for that much, for that many coins. Forget yeah. it. No. They go to another bank, they go to the Wells Fargo Bank, and the lady says, I don't know. You know, you could have some really valuable right. 
pennies in there. You can't just dump all these pennies. You've got to check them out. Right. I mean, there are pennies that are worth like $100,000. Uh, so they try that a little bit and they, they're completely, uh, they forget about it after an right. hour of trying to figure this stuff out. And they, and they don't know. So the latest thing is um, they're offering all these pennies, you know, online, I guess, for $25,000. Okay. $25,000? Yeah. Okay. But, okay, so, but the thing is, they're, they're saying, yeah, I mean, who knows what they're really worth? They said, you have to pick them up. We're not delivering them. Right. Okay, so that's part of the problem. But um, and pe- but people are giving them offers. People are, are saying, well, you know, um, why don't we go through the pennies if anything is really valuable, we'll, we'll split the... Oh, you know what the, the, the way to do this is? What? The way to do this is you just take the pennies. Let's assume that you have uh, a million pennies, whatever it is. Yeah. You just divide them into random lots uh, that someone going to deal with. And it's like selling a pack of baseball cards. And you right. say, here's 10,000 pennies. Uh, we're going to give you this 10,000 pennies, or, or, or excuse me, 1,000 pennies for uh, whatever that would be the equivalent of. I forget how many... I'm losing it already. A thousand <laughs> pennies would normally be the face value of uh, $10, right? Okay. $10? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we'll sell it to you for $12 or $15 because there could be some valuable ones in there. So you're buying a lot of pennies, a lot, which uh, allows you to sift through it. And maybe you got a good one in there. And you sell them in these small lots, all right? And that way, you, you, you can people right. can manage it. And uh, maybe they'll find some treasuries. But if they get a treasure, it's theirs. That's the way I would do it. Problem solved, right? All right. Are you agreeing with me? I can see. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work out. I can see. You know, they've gotten a lot of publicity. Yeah. Okay. At first, they weren't getting too many offers, but then, um, you know, uh, it was covered on some television news. I know when your birthday is. Your birthday. But just, it's careful what you wish for. All right. You're going to get this. I do have. You know what I have downstairs in the basement? A box of the children's piggy banks. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, one's in the shape of the dinosaur, actually. I actually think I have a, like a thousand pennies somewhere. I don't know why. Um, so we're going to have to figure out yeah. what to do okay. with all these coins. We'll be selling it on the internet. Uh, all right. Two quick obituaries and that's it. Then you can go home, Tim. Uh, or you are home. Uh, one is uh, Homer Jones passed away. Homer Jones was uh, the great giant receiver when I was growing up in the 60s. The Giants weren't really a great team, especially toward the latter 1960s. Latter being like anything after 1961. Um, but he was a great wide receiver and uh, very fast. And uh, he always, you know, he, he had a very high average per catch. He caught a lot of long passes for touchdowns, particularly when Fran Tarkenton uh, joined the team. Fran Tarkenton uh, recognized, I'm reading from the Times, that Jones, with his size, speed, and strength in enormous hands, was a unique weapon. Quote, he's like a man on a motorcycle waving a butterfly net high in the air. That's what Homer Jones was like. He was a great <laughs> star. But, you know, what people talk about, you know, the speedsters who were the wide receivers at that time, they always talk about Bob Hayes. And you've heard of Bob Hayes because Bob Hayes was the Olympic gold medalist. Right. Um, and if you were in New York, you would say, we don't care about Bob Hayes. We've got Homer Jones. Well, it turns out, and I didn't even realize this, that other people recognized that Homer Jones was arguably just as fast as Bob Hayes, and if anything, bigger and stronger. And it was so clear, and I never knew this, 
that someone had set up a competition in 1968, I think it was, before the Pro Bowl, a sprint a duel between Bob Hayes and Homer Jones with the winner uh, getting twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and I'm saying to myself, that would have been great, and it would have been a sense of validation of Homer Jones. Um, and this is typical Giants. Wellington Mara, the Giants owner, sort of uh, got himself involved and had the thing called off uh, for two reasons. One, he was fearful of injury to Jones, and let me just say. That's not the way a wide receiver gets injured. A wide receiver gets injured when he's running at full speed and someone tackles him. Right. Not when he's running against Bob Hayes. And secondly, because he thought it would cheapen the Pro Bowl. And the idea of people worrying about cheapening the Pro Bowl is so (laughs) old-fashioned and dumb. Uh, And this would have been such a great thing. The only nice thing about it is Mayor apparently wrote a check to Homer Jones so he didn't lose this opportunity. But... uh, The Giants were awful in those days. They didn't understand anything. Anyway, Homer Jones was a great, great star. It was fun listening to the Giant games when he was playing for them. And finally, you had an obituary. So this is... uh, Well, go ahead. You can explain it. Well, this was interesting. Donald Triplett, Autism's Case One, and a Beacon of Hope, dies at 89. And uh, it was about a boy who was born, 1933. Um... I forget where, in Forest, Mississippi, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, his mother was a high school English teacher, his father a lawyer who'd, from Yale, yeah. gone to Yale, and um, he grows up, you know, a very odd child. He's strange from the beginning, uh, people felt. He was unresponsive to other children. Uh, he seemed to live in a world apart from his family's, he, his family, he, uh, said strange things, talked about commas, semicolons, you know, as a young, young child. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, he was just very different, but he had odd skills. You know, he could, uh, you know, answer without hesitation, uh, the results of multiplying 87 by 23. He could sing songs, perfect pitch, after hearing them just one time, right. etc. So he had that interesting combination of severe limitations in terms of social interaction with um, these oddball skills. His parents actually sent put him into an institution mm-hmm. at age four. Right. Um, and uh and that was not good it was not good yeah. all right they said he he seemed to do some days he spent entire days doing nothing right okay um so they took him out uh thank god and they brought him up he managed to live uh a pretty functional life okay the case one comes from when they took him to a uh child psychiatric clinic in uh, at um, Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. in Maryland. And this doctor, Dr. Kenner, um, is at the, I guess, the forefront of uh, trying to figure out this kind of condition or syndrome or whatever they thought it was at the time, relating it uh, to some extent to some kind of schizophrenia mm. or whatever and he 
writes a paper in 1943, and uh, Donald is, you know, a, a main figure in it. Well, he's the first diagnosed case of autism. Yeah. And which is it's kind of, it's an odd thing to say, because you're saying, well, wait a second. No one had autism before 1940 or 1930, whatever. Uh, and some would say, well, no, I guess it just wasn't diagnosed. And you say, so, okay, but uh, how many people would have uh, been exhibiting these symptoms such that it was completely undiagnosed before then? And it's just hard to reconcile when you think of how many diagnoses of autism there is now. Uh, and it's hard to really put that together. I mean, uh, in any event, but the human story, this guy, again, is case one for right. autism. Uh, but the nice part of this story is it has a happy ending that he lives a uh, well. As he life got older, and... he never stopped having obsessions, speaking yeah. mechanically, struggling to hold a conversation. But he graduated not only from high school but from college, right. where he belonged to a fraternity and studied French and math. He learned to drive. Yeah, well, that's he drove me. himself plus, around in a catalog. Well, plus, now his his family. Uh, had a bank, owned a yeah, bank. They were a wealthy family, okay. so that that made the so, whole thing easier. Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, his grandfather, yeah. you know, he gets a job at as a bank. bookkeeper right. at his uh, grandfather's bank. Yeah. Okay, but so he lives in this small town, a forest, about three thousand people. So it's about the size of Cranberry, mm-hmm. um, where we used to live, and um, they kind of embraced him. The mm-hmm. town embraced him, yeah. and that is part of what. Uh, kind of enabled him you know he he doesn't have tremendous social interaction but he ends up you know able to talk to people around town etc he hangs and out with a group of guys he has uh, a every coffee morning group for in the morning yeah, etc yeah. all right um and uh you know th- you know there's some quotes about uh um if what you're doing hurts don well, yeah. I know where to find you. You know, yeah. so they're very well, protective this, this of him. And the other thing, him. yeah, and then another another quote is Don's got some odd behaviors, some eccentricities, but he's our guy. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a heartwarming. Now he was accepted story. by the town, and it's clearly the wealth of the family helped uh, ease his path in terms of finding uh, a, a slot for him. So, it, it, but it's a story that worked out, and it just, but at the same time, it's it's kind of startling to see that described. This man who was still alive until a week ago as being the first case of autism. It's just, uh, how does that work? I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. Uh, but anyway, it's sort of a, a good story. All right. So that's all we have this week, which is plenty. And, yeah, I'm uh, getting ready for did, um, lots of excitement. Did you give your mother My a mother's shout-out? birthday is coming up. 98. 98. Happy birthday, Viv. 98. I, our next uh, podcast, I will report on the festivities. Yes, exactly. We're looking forward to I that. I think I'm not in charge of the cake this year, so well, I, I, that's a load off. Uh, you'll be in I charge of the relax. cake. I can relax. No, you'll be in charge of the All cake. All right, so meanwhile, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Appuhop. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. We'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs>